hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 214 of our Through the Bible in One Year segment. So just a reminder of what you should have read for day 214. You should have read Second Chronicles 32.1 through 33.13. Verse 15, 23 through 16, 9, 10, 25, 16 through 22, and Proverbs 20, 16 through 18. And so we're going to be focusing on Acts 14, verses 1 through 20. So if you've been following along, right, we've seen Paul and Barnabas on this great missionary journey to the central Mediterranean coast of what would be today known as Turkey, right? And so what we're going to see with today's reading is we are going to see Paul and Barnabas start on the return leg back to Syrian Antioch, or the Antioch that is in Syria, not Pisdian Antioch, right? So the places that we're going to be seeing them stop today are going to be Iconium and Lystra. Iconium Lystra. So we're going to pick up now in verse 1 of chapter 14, and we are going to take it through verse 7. So here's what that says. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews, who refused to believe, stood up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews, others with up with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derby, and to the surrounding country where they continued to Reach the gospel. So let's talk a little bit about this, right? So Iconium was about 90 miles southeast of Pildian Antioch. So what Paul and Barnabas did was they continued their practice of going to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles as was Christ's instructions in his um, Great Commission, right? So that, so, but we know what we see, that we see this team, this great team of Paul and Barnabas had success with both groups, 
Hon and Barnabas had great success with both the Jews and with the Gentiles. And the signs that they did were not likely in healings and exorcisms, but were, pro but were not limited to just those things. So these signs were done in spite of the opposition, right? It ultimately led to Paul and Barnabas leaving for Lystra and Darby. So we see in verse 4 that both Paul and Barnabas are called apostles. So while Paul was an apostle in the same sense that the twelve were, so we see that in Acts chapter 1 verse 26, right? The sentence in Acts 14 verse 4 is more likely that of a missionary or someone who was sent as a representative of another. So that was the sentence that we see used here. So now we're going to pick up in verse 8. And go through verse 10, which says, In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He was listening to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. Right? So the lengthy description of this man that we cannot want to be seen here is to describe the magnitude of the healing that is to come. Because you see the unnamed man. Because you see this man is not given a name. We're not told what this man's name was. We're just told this man had been lame from birth. And so because he had been lame from birth, he had never walked. That means he had never developed the muscles that were needed to walk. So in other words, this man had insufficient physical structures to enable locomotion. So in other words, this man was not only unable to walk for psychological reasons, this man was also unable to walk for physical reasons. And so, therefore, walking could only happen if these structures were provided or created for him. So, after, after hearing Paul preach the gospel, right, the man had faith to be healed. And so, therefore, Paul's brief words of healing right here contrast with the life of suffering that this man had lived prior to this point in time. Right? So now we're going to pick up verse 11 and we're going to take it through verse 13 which says, When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods 
have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and rings to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Right. So, when we talk about the Lyconian language, this language that we're not really entirely sure what it was, because it's the, it survived until at least the 5th century, so it probably was some form or shadow of Greek, even though it existed until the 5th century, but it is no longer spoken. So it got incorporated either with modern-day Turkish, it got incorporated with modern-day Greek, or it got incorporated with some other language from that but it's no longer spoken today and it seems to exist by the 5th century which would have been about the years about the 600 or so AD maybe 600 or so so what we see here is that the crown's pronouncement was deeply disturbing and it horrified Paul and Barnabas right so why does it horrify Paul and Barnabas, right? Because their pronouncement was an acceptance of idolatry, right? And so Paul and Barnabas were strictly opposed to idolatry. And the crowd was essentially now making them the objects of false worship. Right, so in other words, the, so what the crowds were doing, they were comparing Barnabas to Zeus, who was the chief god in the Greek pantheon, right? And they were comparing Paul to Hermes, who was the messenger god, who was the one who essentially spoke for the gods in the Greek pantheon. So in Greek mythology, if the gods wanted to send a message to someone, they almost always sent Hermes with that message. Right, where we're going now, right? So Barnabas was Zeus because he was the one that did not talk and was, you know, appeared to be the one who was more powerful. Paul was the messenger or Hermes because he was the one who spoke what they perceived was what Barnabas wanted them to know. So what? So, uh, so now, let, now let's talk about this idea. They were, were going to sacrifice a bull, right? So to sacrifice a bull was an incredibly expensive gesture, but it was also an unfit and also bizarre, misguided gesture because they were going to sacrifice a bull to two men who were not gods, who were not worthy of a sacrifice being made to them instead of offering up a sacrifice to the one true God what they were offering up a sacrifice to was to two men or they were attempting 
more for our sacrifice to two men who were not gods, but who were mere mortals. So now let's pick up in verse 14 and take it through verse 18. So here's what that says. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? Why are you only, oh, excuse me, we too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their way. Yet he has not only left himself without testimony, he has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. So here, so here's what we see here, here's what we see here, right? So, Paul and Barnabas showed their great distress by tearing their clothes, which was an ancient sign of being in distress, which only tore your clothes if you were greatly disturbed by something that someone had done, which is what Paul and Barnabas do here. So their opposition to this attempted idolatry, to this attempted, to this attempted attempt, that's really bad language there, pardon that, so their, so their opposition to this attempted, to this attempt to worship them, led them to stop it, right, to put a stop to it, to, to get involved in this thing physically, rather than to only protest it, because to only protest it would have led to these men offering a sacrifice to them, which would have in turn diluted the message that they were bringing. So in other words, what it's, what's going on here, right, is Paul and Barnabas' declaration of the actions of God forms the foundation for the evangelizing of the nations, right, because it describes God's relationship to people, right, so he's the living God who is the creator. It gives the reason for people's distance from him, right? In other words, God allowed this to happen in the past. And God's con uh, continual witness to them. In other words, his creation, God's creation, loudly proclaims him. So the speech is similar to the one given at the Arapagos that we're going to see in 17, 22 through 30. And when Paul is in Athens and he gives this great speech to the Athenians of, who were worshipping at a 
temple of an unknown god, right? And so Paul essentially tells them at this point in time, this unknown god that you are worshipping is in fact the one true god, right? So what we see at the very end of this small section is that Paul and Barnabas barely succeeded in stopping this crowd from offering sacrifices to them. Barely succeeded in stopping this crowd from worshipping them. So now let's take it through the end of this section. It's going to be verses 19 and 20. So this is what these last two verses say, right? It says, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, <coughs> and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Darby. So, so what we see here in these last two verses, right, is the apostles' protest and their stopping of these people from worshipping them and offering sacrifices to them didn't get them very many friends. But they weren't here to get friends. They were here to win people for Jesus. And you see what happened here, right? You see a group of outsiders who came from Antioch, purposely pissed in Antioch, and from Iconium, right? Who came from there, right? And won the crowd over. So in other words, they won the crowd over. They made some appealing speech to the crowd about these two men that completely changed the crowd's attitude about them. So then we see that Paul is stoned. In other words, they picked up stones and they hurled them at Paul until they thought that Paul was dead. Right? So that's the that's the natural way to read this text and that is more than likely what happened. These people dragged Paul out of the city, they stoned him, and they left him for dead. In other words, Paul was probably at this point in time dead. But 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 what do we see? We see what what do we see here, right? It says but after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derby, right? They left for Derby, right? So Paul's preservation from death, right? Or more precisely probably Paul's being raised back up from the dead, because more than likely Paul was probably dead at this point in time, and then his recovery from the wounds that a stoning would have inflicted upon him are indicators of God's intervention in his life. The fact this happened should show us that God has something important for Paul to do, 
and God's not gonna let anything stand in the way of Paul accomplishing this mission. And so that's where we're gonna pick up when next we are together as we see Paul and Barnabas make their actual return trip to Syrian Antioch. And so in order for you to be prepared for that discussion, here's what you need to read. So you need to read 2 Chronicles 33, verse 14 through 34, verse 33. Romans 16, 10 through 26. Psalm 26, 1 through 12. And Proverbs 20, 19. Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 215 of Earth of the Bible in One Year segment. So, what you should have read to be prepared for today is 2 Chronicles 33, 14 through 34, 33, Romans 16, 10 through 26, Psalm 26, 1 through 12, and Proverbs 20, 19. So our focus for today is going to be on Acts 14, 21 through 28. So what we have been doing is we have been following Paul and Barnabas along on their great missionary journey through Asia Minor. So we have seen them visit many cities along the central Mediterranean coast of Asia Minor, which is what we would call today Turkey. So we have seen a great deal of believers come to the faith, both Jews and Gentiles, through the missionary work of Paul and Barnabas, but now it is time for them to return home to Syrian Antioch. And so that's what we're going to be covering today, is Paul and Barnabas returning home to Syrian Antioch. So we're going to pick up with that in Acts 14, verse 21, and we're going to take it through 20, verse 23, which says they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. So the stop we see here in Darby, right, is just very briefly recounted. All we should know is that Paul and Barnabas were there long enough to make disciples. So within since they make this return to the previous cities that they had visited, which was both pastoral and brave, because you remember they had met with opposition in just about every city that they stopped in. 
so that instruction to pres to persevere in trouble emphasizes that troubles are going to be unavoidable. Our troubles are going to be unavoidable on the journey to enter the kingdom, and the appointment of elders to be here was necessary for the spiritual health of the church. So the plural form here, the plural elders, so we don't say they appointed an elder, they appointed elders. And the kings to each church needed plurality of elders. In other words, to each church needed more than one elder. They needed multiples. They needed three, four, however many they appointed. We're not told how many, but we know that they needed more than one. So to commit these leaders and the churches that they were responsible for leading, they were responsible for helping to make the right decisions, right? To, uh, to the Lord is not a statement of abandonment, but one of confidence in the Lord's providence. In other words, they weren't saying, hey, look, we're going to abandon you. No, 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 no. We're going to put you in the care of one who's not going to leave you. We can't be here all the time, but that doesn't mean we're going to stop thinking about you. We're going to put you into the hands of the one who is there all the time. So now let's pick up in verse 24 and go through verse 28. Take us through the end of chapter 14. Right. So here's what that says. It says, after going through Poseidia and coming into Pamphylia, and when they had reached the excuse me, when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attila. From Attila they sailed back to Antioch, when they had been uh, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them, and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Right. <coughs> so, no reason is given for the return to Antioch, except for the fact they had fulfilled the mandate that had been given to them by the church in Syria and Antioch. So we get the impression then that, that, that the mission and the commissioning were more than closely connected. They were united. So now to finish this up, let's circle back around to verses 22 and 23. And we're going to look at two key phrases that occur in those two verses. So those two key phrases are through many hardships, which, com which comes out of verse 22, and appointed elders, which comes out of verse 23. 
So the first one is too many hardships, which is Friday the 22. So what is going on here? What, is, what do we mean by that? So what we're saying here is that those who submit to Christ's lordship, in other words, those who recognize his authority over their lives, will have a place and have a place in God's eternal kingdom, and they su must suffer many hardships along the way. So, therefore, so what do we mean by that? So, what we're saying is that living in a world that is hostile toward our message and to our and towards our master, we must engage constantly in spiritual warfare against sin and Satan's power. And there are two things that we got to remember about the many, many hardships, right? So, the first one is that those who are for Christ his word and his perfect purposes can expect trouble in this world. Yeah, so in other words, what we're saying is that only the uncommitted will find what might seem to be peace and comfort from the world. Those that are committed to Christ won't find any peace and they won't find any comfort in the world. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the present evil world and those false believers who live in the present evil world will always oppose the full truth of Christ's message until he returns to overthrow the evil world system. But meanwhile, the hope of Jesus' true followers, those who are truly committed to him, is stored up in heaven that comes out of Colossians 1, 5, and will be revealed in the last time that comes out of 1 Peter 3, uh, 1 Peter 1, 5. So in other words, our hope is not in this life, nor is it in this world, but it is in Jesus' return to take us home with him. That's where we find our hope. So that's the first phrase. That's too many hardships. So now let's move on to appointed elders, which is what we see in verse 23, right? So this process that we're talking about here, this process of selecting and appointing elders, that would be people who are like overseers, pastors, and other church leaders involve seeking God's will and it involves seeking his desires, it involves seeking his directions, it involves seeking his intentions, it involves seeking his purposes through prayer and fasting. So when we talk about fasting, we're not just talking about going without food, we're also talking about going without anything else that could cause a spiritual distraction for a, a limited period of time to devote more time to prayer. But this process of appointing elders also involved examining the character, the spiritual gifts, or the, the God-given abilities <coughs> to honor him and benefit others of these men, as well as evaluating their um, reputation and the evidence of the spirit's fruits. That would be the spirit's character traits and the spirit's effect in these men who are being considered 
ownership. And so we see that more in First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And so what happens in this process is those who meet God's standards are appointed to serve. So we're going to talk more about these standards when we get to First Timothy. And so that's where we're going to pick up the next week together as we see the trouble that this first concerted effort to take the gospel to the Gentiles stirred up, which, by the way, led to the first ever church council. So what you need to read to be prepared for that is Second Chronicles 35 and 36, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 17, Psalm 27, 1 through 6, and Proverbs 20, 20 and 21. Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 216 of Arthur the Bible in one year segment. So just as a recap of what you should have read to be prepared for today, you should have read Second Chronicles 35 and 36. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 17, Psalm 27, 1 through 6, and Proverbs 20, 20 through 21. So our focus for today is on Acts 15, 1 through 21. So we finished up the last time we were together with Paul and Barnabas returning to Syrian Antioch. So, but before that, we had been following them through the central part of the modern-day Turkey on their missionary journey. So, however, so however, what we're going to see today is we're going to see the first big split in the church. Because what we're going to see is that a group of people came to Antioch from Judea, which was the Roman province where Christianity got its start, right? And so what and they began we want to see these people begin to teach that in order to be saved, one must not only have saving faith in Jesus, but then but that one must also be circumcised. And so and as and as you can all imagine I'm sure you can probably imagine, right, this really, really, really got under Paul and Barnabas' skin, and it brought these Judaizers, as they will be called later on in history, into direct conflict with both Paul and Barnabas. So it brought them into direct conflict with both Paul and Barnabas. So let's pick up an Acts chapter 15, verse 1. We're going to take it through verse 2, which says certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching. 
teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. Right, so when we can pay close attention to him, pay very close attention, this is going to be important, right? So the Christian proclamation was not about God's reformation of Judaism, rather through the actions of God in Christ. Gentiles were coming as Gentiles into the kingdom of God. God didn't want to reform Judaism. He didn't want to say, you need to follow all the rules of Judaism, but in a reformed manner. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is we're spiritually making something completely new, completely different. The old covenant has gone away and has been replaced by the new covenant. Right. But still there were some professing Jewish Christians who held stubbornly to their old traditions, things like you have to be circumcised, things like you have to keep kosher, those sorts of things, things that don't really matter in the long run. And in fact, they even insisted that a Gentile had to take on the whole old covenant to include being circumcised before they could be saved. So what are we saying here? We're saying grace plus works, right? Grace plus works. It is not by grace alone, it is grace plus works. So if you don't do the right works, you are not saved. So these Jewish Christians were called Judaizers, and their aim was to make practicing Jews out of those people who were ethnic Gentiles. You understand that they wanted to make practicing Jews out of ethnic Gentiles. So with this issue, with this issue that we're seeing here, right, the very nature of the gospel is at stake because the question that's being posed here is 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 this is it salvation by grace through faith alone or does it require works you see this question created the first theological crisis for the church and this issue is going to be settled in Jerusalem since this since Jerusalem was the source of the problem it's where this problem originated so now let's continue on with verses 3 through 5 which say church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they 
told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So what's happening here? What's going on here, right? So along their way to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas shared with the churches the great and glorious news of the Gentile conversions, right? So which obviously led these churches to rejoice. So, but when they get to Jerusalem, they see another party stand up and take the side of the Judaizers, and that would be the party of the Pharisees, right? Which is suggesting, at the very least, a theological solidarity. There kind of sort of was the Pharisees were the most conservative of the Jewish sect. They were the sect to which Paul belonged to before his conversion. So now let's talk a little bit about that, right? So as modern day Christians, right, we have a very negative image of the Pharisees, right? So when much of it is rightly deserved from, from Jesus' comments over in Matthew 23, he pronounces his old woes against the scribes and the Pharisees, right, the most conservative of the Jewish sects. However, in Luke's Gospel, there is, Luke doesn't note the Pharisaic hostility against the faith if you note Jesus' condemnation of them, Luke does note the hostility of the Pharisees towards the, the faith, and he does note Jesus' condemnation of them, so we see that in Luke 13, 31. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, that's not where that comes from. But, but, Luke, but Luke also portrays them in a more positive light, and that's Luke 13, 31. So, what we see here is we see here that the Pharisees who are mentioned here were more like that latter group where they're given, presented in more of a positive light. These are men who had converted to Christianity but still wanted to retain their Jewishness. Right. So, these were not the same group of Pharisees who received criticism for Jesus. And so it was because they were theologically conservative, right, that they, they were, right, it was more natural for them to resist change. Since conservatives, whether it be politically or theologically, are the ones who are least likely to change. Notice the keyword they're least likely to change. They will change conservatives will change, but there has to be a valid reason given for change in order for them to be changed. Right. 
doing some continuity in this vein, right? So even though it's clear, it's clear here that some of these Pharisees continue to be theologically conservative. The conclusion of the council we're about ready to see suggests a major concession by them. So we're going to get into that in just a minute. So now we're going to pick up in verse 13, or excuse me, verse 6, and we're going to go through verse 12, excuse me, verse 6, and go through verse 12 for right now, which says, the apostles and elders meant to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we say just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So what we see here, what we see here, that the apostles and the elders had every right, they had every intention, and they were going to decide this question once this meeting got started. They weren't going to drag their feet. They weren't going to have this go on for years and years and years. They were going to hash this out right here, right now. It was how important this issue was to them. So what we see here is that the majority of this debate is reported in some way form. We're not told how both sides presented the arguments. We're not told what both sides gave in their arguments. We're just told the summary of it, and then we're also told the results of this argument. So what we then see is we see Peter take this bold step to stand up and give testimony in this crucial issue about the conversion of Cornelius and his family. Why was that so important, right? Why was that so important? Because what we're seeing is that Peter is saying, hey look, I've already done what Paul and Barnabas have been doing. I didn't make Cornelius and his family become Jewish. And that Jewish is in quotes. Because I didn't make them become Jewish. I didn't make them become 
in order for them to be safe. In fact, Peter goes on to say, Peter makes three observations about all of this, and then he draws a conclusion, <coughs> excuse me, from all of this. So the first observation he made was God was the one who brought Peter and Cornelius together, and if God is the one that brought them together, who are we to say anything different about it? The second observation he made is that God confirmed the genuineness of their faith through the giving of the Holy Spirit, right? If God hadn't sent the Holy Spirit, then this would not have been a genuine conversion effort, and something else would have been needed. But God gave them the Holy Spirit, which made this a genuine conversion experience. And the third and final, um, the third and final observation he makes is that God cleansed both Jew and Gentile by faith without distinction. So there was no distinction between the Jews, there was no distinction between the Gentiles. God cleansed both groups and God still cleanses both groups by faith. There is no distinction in God's eyes. So therefore the conclusion that we see here, right, is that the Judaizers would be testing, they would be testing God if they provoked him with these teachings and imposed this yoke on the Gentiles that neither they nor their ancestors could bear. If they put on the Gentiles what they themselves could not bear, then they would be testing God. And we're not told not to test God. The only time we're told to test God is when it comes to our tithes and offerings. That's the only time we're told to test God. That's what we're saying here. So we're saying that, that the Jews only experienced the law of Moses should have led them to see the fallacy of their argument about salvation. Should have led them to see the fallacy of this argument. And so after Peter was finished, Paul and Barnabas went on to testify about their experience in Galatia. So in other words, what's happening here, what we're seeing Peter saying, we're seeing Peter say God is not into the hearts of the Gentiles, means that he, uh, he was, he was truly, uh, that he saw true saving faith within them, and that God himself testified to the genuineness of their faith by spiritually cleansing their hearts through the inward work of the Holy Spirit, and by baptizing them in the Spirit immediately afterwards with the accompanying sign of speaking in tongues. So which leads us to the central question at the Jerusalem Council, which was whether circumcision and obedience to the law God gave for Moses were requirements for salvation. And you see, the 
delegates here can govern based on the evidence they were given and based on the prompting and the moving of the Holy Spirit that the Gentiles were spiritually saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus who forgave them and made them a new creation through their faith in Him. So in other words, what we're saying is that God's grace, which is His unearned favor and His unearned spiritual enablement, is extended to a person when that person repents and believes in Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. And it's this response to God's grace that enables that person to become a child of God and to enter into a personal relationship with Christ. So now let's pick up in verse 13 and take it through verse 19, which says this. Uh, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. His ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, the things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So God's purposes here in this period of history is to bring people of all nations into a personal relationship with himself and to separate them for his cause. And it is this worldwide and it is the worldwide body of Christ followers excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, this worldwide body of Christ followers who are gathered out of and separated from the corrupt world system is being prepared as the bride of Christ. So James then goes on to support the uh, James supported by the prophetic word of Amos agrees then that Christ's mission to restore people to a right and personal relationship with himself includes both Jews and non Jews. So this phrasing we see David's fallen tent refers to a portion of Israel that remains faithful to God and therefore survives his judgment. So Amos' prophecy states the following, right? It states that God will judge Israel for rebelling against him, yet he will not totally destroy them as a people. It also says he will destroy all those in Israel who completely reject Christ and refuse to turn from their own way. 
And lastly, it says, it states, if the destruction of those who reject him, God will restore David's fallen tent. So in other words, the salvation of these faithful and spiritually purified Jews will result in other nations accepting and honoring the Lord, which is what we're be what we're beginning to see here in Acts and what we're going to see all throughout the rest of the book of Acts, right, that God is using the Jews who have not rejected God to restore David's fallen tent by bringing in new blood into this covenant relationship. So now let's finish this up with verses 20 and 21, which says this, Instead we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So we see here, we see there are, we see here that they gave four prohibited items, right? And these four prohibited items were part of pagan temple worship. So the first prohibited item that we are told that they're told to abstain from food polluted by idols, right, which relates to eating in the presence of idols. In other words, don't be part of pagan feasts. The second thing we see here is they're told to abstain from sexual immorality and so when we're talking about sexual immorality in a temple context means prostitution. So they were not to be engaged with temple prostitutes, right? So the third thing they are told to abstain from is from the meat of strangled animals, right? Which refers to a form of ritual sacrifice. So the fourth thing they're told to abstain from is to abstain from blood, which refers to the drinking of blood. So the whole point of all of this, when we prohibiting these things that were particularly offensive to those who were Jewish, but, but also in renouncing idolatrous practices, Here's what we're saying, right? So while the Jewish, while the Council of Jerusalem agreed that Gentiles came to Christ without becoming Jews first, right? These Gentiles who had come to Christ through, through grace by faith, right? Still needed to make a clean break with their idolatrous past. So in other words, there was no part, no space for Sennacherib 
there was no space for turning back of any sort. <coughs> there was no space for dualism. There was no space for I. Uh, I want to be a follower of Christ, but I still want to fit in with all of my old peeps. I still want to go to the temple and hang out with them. I still want to eat when they eat at the temple. I still want to go and hang out with them when they go and have all their fun with the temple prostitutes. I still want to go with them and drink the blood with them when they drink the blood offered to the gods in the temples also, right? <coughs> so is it the foundation for these prohibitions was the fact that the law of Moses by the way, had been taught in the city of the letters are going to be sent for generations, specifically the Jack's idolatry and its accompanying contamination. So, in other words, what we're saying is that if Gentile Christians ignore this reality for the sake of cultural assimilation, in other words, they wanted to assimilate into the culture. They wanted to assimilate back into the culture rather than being set apart, which is what we're called to be as followers of Christ. We're called to be set apart. We're called to be different. And so these four prohibitions were a way for these new believers to set themselves apart. Right? set themselves apart and to not reassimilate, to not be culturally assimilated, right? So if they ignore this, these prohibitions for the sake of cultural assimilation, they would be violating the scripture and they would impede Jewish evangelism and they would disrupt fellowship on very important things. And so that is where we will pick up the next time we are together. And in order for you to be prepared for that, here's what you need to read. You need to read Ezra, chapters 1 and 2, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 2, 5, Psalm 27, 7 through 14, and Proverbs 20. 22 and 23.